This is a recording being made in the chapel of the open book under the covering series of the pre-Roma. The special section has to do with the closing chapters of the book of the Revelation. Those of you who are listening to this recording may know that we have a practice in this chapel of reading the portion of scripture around. Now if you care to join us, will you switch off for a few moments while we read together Isaiah 65, commencing at verse 17, right through to the end of chapter 66. There's a good deal in those chapters that needs very careful explanation. But I think you will perceive the reason why they were read, because those two chapters are the Old Testament references to the new heaven and the new earth. And that is to occupy part of our attention this evening. I say part of our attention because although we did our best last time, you remember that we sacrificed the tone of the voice to get a longer record made, but even then there's a bit left over. So I'm just going to try to pick up where I left off last time and add that piece and then go on to the question of where the new heaven and the new earth fits in the scheme. Now let me just say for the benefit of a few who haven't been able to be with us all the time. That's the character of this meeting, that's no reproach. We say if you can't come every Thursday, if you can only come what they call once in a blue moon, well come. And we'll do our best to try to help you over any difficulties that may crop up. We are very concerned just now with the question of what the millennium stands for. You see, if you don't open the book, you keep the book shut, the millennium stands for some utopia, so that you may get a worldly man, he says, oh, you want to bring in the millennium, you see. And it goes without controversy that the word millennium stands for a period of perfect peace, uh, all the most marvellous kingdom you could imagine. Well, we've been looking at the scriptures, and we've had a rather severe shaking up. Good for us, of course, if we've been entertaining wrong ideas. Because when the Lord returns to set up that kingdom, I read this, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. That's right on the verge of the millennium. When's he going to rule them with a rod of iron? During the millennium. Well, that doesn't look like perfect peace, does it? Well, this is written for our learning. And if the whole wide world has gone wrong, we're not going with them simply because we don't want to be odd man out. We'll be odd men out all the time if we believe this book, so we might as well go, go all the way with it. Then the next thing which we raised, the question we raised, to whom was the book of the Revelation written? Well, you may say for Bible students of all time, oh yes, that's why we're looking at it, but originally, what thou seest, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are specified. And when the whole of the Revelation is finished, the last chapter comes back to the seven churches in the book that was written. So if you shut your eyes to that, you can make the book of the Revelation mean almost anything. But if you say to yourself, now, everything in this book, not merely the first two or three chapters which speak of the churches, but all the rest of it, impinges 
upon some characters that are brought out in those churches, then you're on the right track. Now, you haven't got to read those seven churches with any measure of intelligence without being struck by this note. Every time, to him that overcometh will I grant this, to him that overcometh will I grant that. Seven times over to him that overcometh. That's one point. And then seven times over, I know thy works. That's another point. Well, when we get to the book of the Revelation, chapter 20, the central feature of the thousand years is, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. I saw those who had refused the mark of the beast and the beheaded because they would not bow to him and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. See? There's the overcomer. And then it says the rest of the dead. Now we looked at that last time because some people have said oh that's all the dead that have ever been all the ungodly of all time are going to be raised now. But that's not the meaning of the word rest. I was just looking I'm thinking now, if these folks, when they're reading that passage in Isaiah, if they all read two verses, well, these few won't get a look in, you see. Then suddenly it dawned upon one of our friends, and they read one verse. But if you would have gone on, and we ended up with a verse here, I said, the rest of you won't be able to read it. I wouldn't mean the rest of the whole creation, or even the rest in London. Just the rest of the company here. So we've got a group in the Revelation. Some of them live and reign, and the rest... The rest, wait till the thousand years is over and then we have the great white throne and the book is open and they're judged according to their works. I know thy works, I know thy works, I know thy works. It's the same company divided into two. Either you overcome or you don't. It's not the judgment of the ungodly at a great general judgment at the time of the end. That may be, but it's not there. This belongs to this. And so we found that when it says this is the first resurrection, it doesn't mean the first resurrection that ever was. It's the former of two. The former of two. And the other one is at the great white throne. And the great white throne turns out to be a session of the judgment seat of Christ, which you find in Paul's epistles. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Our salvation is absolutely certain. But what comment he's going to make about our service, we've got to wait and see. And there's all the difference in the world between our standing in Christ, accepted in the Beloved, and running for a prize, which even the Apostle Paul says, I'm not sure I've got it yet. And if he wasn't sure, I'm sure I'm not. Not till the end could he write, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith, henceforth a crown. So we have to do with people who are honoured by God in the time of anti-Christian oppression, who refuse all this intimidation, and they reach the crown and the throne. Let me quote to you from one of the overcoming sections in the churches. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcome and am set down with my father in his. There it is. Let me quote another one. To him that overcometh will I grant to rule the nations with a rod of iron. There they are. They've lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But now we come to two that occupied our attention rather more severely. To one, he says, you're going through a period of tribulation, but he says, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life to him that overcometh. He shall not be hurt of the second death. Fancy that. Fancy that. To an overcomer, he says, you'll not be hurt of the second death. 
Well, we've handed the second death over to the ungodly. We've got rid of that. But you can't get rid of it. You can't. To him that overcometh will I grant that he shall not be hurt of the second death. Well, the implication is, if you don't overcome, you might be. There's another one waiting for you in the another church. I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Well, now I do hope that everyone in this meeting is so sure of salvation, so sure that it rests upon the finished work of Christ, that they know their name could never be blotted out of the book of eternal life. It's the gift of God. So what does it mean when it says, I will not blot your name out of the book of life? It means to say that the book of life cannot mean the book of salvation. It's still to do with him that overcometh. And we discovered that the only other reference outside the revelation to the book of life was not in Ephesians where you have the choice of God and the elect people, but in Philippians where they are serving and running and they've got a prize in view. And he said, my fellow labourers are in the book of life. And in the book of the Revelation, the book of life is associated with since the foundation of the world, the Lamb slain. And you remember in the Gospel according to Luke, upon this generation shall come the blood of all the martyrs that have suffered since the foundation of the world. And the first one mentioned is Abel. So Abel's the first name in the book of life, God's book of martyrs. A little bit more wonderful than Fox's book of martyrs. But his name's there, Abel, to the last one, that we get here in this company. Well now, what I wanted to do was to supplement just one little bit more with regard to this problem that we were facing uh, about the second death. How can that have any reference to a believer? It's a strange statement we read in Revelation chapter 2, verse 11. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, he that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. That's the bit that's strange, isn't it? If the second death means the orthodox hell for the wicked dead, and then you say you won't be hurt by it, well, that's, that, that doesn't seem to make sense, does it? I'm sure God means something. It means sense. Well, do you know what it means? Or if you don't, then you say, well, if there's any light on it, let's have it. Is that your view? Oh, it's mine, anyhow. So I want to pass this on to add to what we said last week. This is a little appendix, you see. And then we go on. Should not be hurt. First thing, of course, is, the first thing is to say, what was the word originally used in the original, in Greek? You can't help ourselves, you must do that. And it's a simple word, adikio, A-D-I-K-E-O, and D-I-K is the stem of all the words for righteousness, justification, right in the New Testament. I'll give you the way in which it is translated in the 22nd chapter. This is the word hurt, and it comes eight or nine times in the book of the Revelation, being hurt. And then it suddenly changes in chapter 22, verse 11. Here it is. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. That's the word hurt. I'll try to explain how it's come about, but let's read this for a minute. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. So we've got a division like the sheep and the goats. They're not the sheep and the goats, but you've got the division. This lot are unjust and filthy. This lot are holy and righteous. I'm coming to reward them according to their works. 
Well, that's all they harbored in. Nothing discordant yet. But how does it come about that this word is unjust and hurt in the same book? Well, it comes about this way. That the word unjust is also the word in the way language changes a wee bit, which means to do a person wrong. And that gives you the key. So will you turn with me to one or two passages just to be sure of this. Matthew 20, verse 13. And of course you must take it from me for the time being that this is exactly the same word without altering a letter. Matthew 20, verse 13. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? I do thee no injustice. I do thee no wrong. And it's to do with reward for work. You notice the connection. It's the reward for work and there's no doing wrong about it. Then if you'll turn to Acts 7, 24, you'll get another. I'd like to get two witnesses. That's in harmony with scripture. Acts 7, 24. This is speaking of Moses. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him. He suffered wrong. That's the same word as the word unjust. It's the same word as the word being hurt by the second death. Well, now we'll come to the passage which uses it in such a way that I think, like Isaiah would say, the wayfaring man, though a fool, need not err. Therein. I'm not calling anybody names, of course, friends. I'm only saying, here it is. Colossians chapter 3. But in order to make the point very clear, Colossians chapter 1, first of all. Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet. I think we'd agree that that's referring to something that's already done. We're not asking, oh God, do make me meet. We're saying, oh God, I thank thee thou hast made me meet. This is something done. Hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. In the light, strictly speaking. This is a finished thing. This is equivalent to Ephesian statement of being made accepted in the beloved. And a little further down the chapter, in verse 22, in the body of his flesh, through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Now that's as perfect as a person can get. Because these two words, unblameable and unreprovable, refer one of them to a temple and one to a law court. Let me explain. The word unblameable should be translated in line with all the rest of the passages, to be without blemish. Now you know that's a term that's sacrificial. Christ was verily foreordained before the foundation of the world as a lamb without blemish. That's this word. It's the word used not only of a sacrifice but of a priest in the Old Testament. A priest must be of the tribe of Levi. A priest must be of the family of Aaron. But even so, if he had a blemish of any sort, if he had anything superfluous or anything deficient, he was excluded from the priesthood. 
I've often thought when I've stepped over the people sunbathing on the shores when I've had a day at the seaside, there's not many of you who get through the test for a priest in Israel. I don't know what you feel about We're mostly wrapped up in this climate, you see. But they were perfect men, physically, whatever their morals may have been. That's our position. We're thanking God that it is so, without blemish. And the other word, unreprovable, is found in Romans, the 8th chapter, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And the answer is, it's God that justifies. You see, that's the law court. So here's a position which we thank God for, that we are without blemish, sacrificially, and we are acquitted legally. Now in this very chapter, after saying that Christ is going to present us like that, Paul says in verse 28, whom we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Oh, that seems, that seems outrageous, doesn't it? Is Paul going to present somebody more perfect than being without blame and acquitted? Well, it depends on the word perfect. And if you don't know what the perfect word perfect is, you may go very, very fast trade. So, back again, we go to the original. And we find this original word as, as its basis three letters, or four letters, so far as we are concerned. T-E-L-E. Yes. Television, the word. You say, well, that's not perfect yet. No, it's not in our sense of the word. Telephone, well, that's not perfect. Telegram, telescope. Now, what is the common denominator that makes it possible in an English language to put tele in front of those? There's one thing that's true of them all. Distance is in view. Telephone, you speak at a distance. Telegram, you write at a distance. Telescope, you look at a distance. Television, it's brought from a distance. And there are many others. So the word perfect doesn't mean getting better and better and better and improving. It's a term borrowed from a race course. And Paul said, the very word, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he said, I have finished my course, dromos, hippodrome, hippo, horse, dromos, race course, I have finished my course, henceforth a crown. That's the word perfect. And so Hebrew says that our Saviour Christ was made perfect by the things which he suffered. But he was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners from the beginning. But perfect means that he came to do a work and he did it. Is it interesting to you that, to know that on the cross itself the word telly comes? Do you believe it? Can you hear it? When he said Peter Leakey, when he said it is finished. I have finished. I have ended. I've come to the glorious consummation. So what Paul was saying to the, to the Korea, Colossians is this. Look, you have a perfect acceptance. And we're thanking God for it. But it doesn't mean to say you sit back and say, oh, well, doesn't matter what we do. Surely gratitude should say, not that I could win salvation or make it secure, but if a new life is mine, would it not be manifested? I want you now, he says, to run with patience the race that is set before you and touch the tape at the end. And so he says in Colossians 2, verse 18, let no man beguile you of your reward. Now the word catabrabuo, which is to beguile you of your reward, 
includes the word brab, B-R-A-B, which is the stem of the word brabas, a prize in Philippians. You see, no man can cheat you of your life. You know where that is hid, do you, friends? It's hid with Christ in God. And he never says, beware lest any man rob you of your life. It's not robbable. But he can cheat you of your crown. Paul says, I'm not expecting to present any man better than Christ has made him. I'm only hoping that he will run the race and he'll have the prize. So now we've got to chapter 3. I haven't forgotten it. Chapter 3. Verse 22. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service, as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. This is the atmosphere of service, isn't it? They're servants, they have masters, it's not eye service, they're not men pleasers, but they're fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. You won't receive the inheritance. That's yours already, but there's a reward attached to it which you might lose. For ye serve the Lord Christ. Then some folks, I just like to stop there and imagine that the next verse isn't written. But we're going to face it. Because this is where the word hurt comes in. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Now that's the word hurt. It's in an atmosphere and a context of a reward for faithful service. And he says to the one who resists all the temptation to succumb, you will not be hurt. You'll never have the wrong come back to you that you've done. But you see, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, if you'll let me just turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 10, you'll see that that is in mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. You say, very uncomfortable sort of meeting we had on Thursday night. We weren't all being told that we were saved and it was secure. We are friends, we are saved. But we're saying all scripture's got to be considered, not bits of it that we like. And you see, those who were hurt by the second death, they were see, receiving the wrong. As Colossians says, they will receive the wrong. It's coming back on them. They do not die a second time. They're only hurt by the second day. Let's keep to what the scripture says. The Lord said to some of those in his own time when he was with them, for the first time in scripture, he told them that suffering was connected with discipleship. Take up their cross and follow him. But he says, there shall be some standing here that shall not taste of death. He didn't say that they shall die. They shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man come in his kingdom. And took three of them up. The very next words, he took three of them up the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw his majesty, said Peter. We saw it. Before ever they suffered for Christ, they saw the glory in that moment of transfiguration. Then they went down the mountain and presently they were prepared to taste of death. Taste of death isn't dying. To be hurt of a second death isn't to be slain, but it's to be just given just give back to you that which you did not endure. You see, when we were looking 
at the subject last time, we discovered that there was a death that was being endured by the Apostle Paul before the day came when he died as a mortal man. He said, I die daily. I've been death soft. And you see, if you shirk that, well, it goes the other side of the story. That's called the second time, just a touch of it. Well, if I go on like this, we shan't get time to put the rest in, and I want to get the new heavens and the new earth into this subject. So, for the moment, if you've got any more problems, well, count me among them, for I've got plenty. And I don't pretend in these meetings to solve them all. Now, at the uh, end of the Great White Throne, chapter 21, we read like this, the book of the Revelation. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. Now, those of us who were all here, we read Isaiah 65 and 66. And you remember that in both passages where the Lord speaks about, I create a new heavens and a new earth, he directs you to Jerusalem. Immediately. But that's the Jerusalem on the earth. But here where the new heaven and the new earth is mentioned, it's the new Jerusalem that descends from God out of heaven. So the new heaven and the new earth, wherever it's mentioned, is associated with that city or its heavenly equivalent. Now the next thing to notice is this. The word first. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. If you look at... um, uh, verse 4, at the end of verse 4, it says, for the former things are passed away. Well, it wouldn't be very easy to say the first things are passed away, but that wouldn't be sense. This is the same word as the word first. It's not the first heaven and earth that ever was, but it's the former of two. The former of two. Now, you'll notice on this chart, I haven't disguised it, there are two patches staring at you nice, white and clean, aren't they? That's because I made a mistake. Oh, it's good for your soul sometimes to make a mistake, but it's better for your soul if you repent and try to make it right. Well, what I did was this. I got at the very end there the new heaven and the new earth and I was walking with millions of other Christians, for they put it right at the very end of all things. That's the last thing that God's going to do, a new heaven and a new earth. And then I began to realise that it couldn't be. You say, why? Well, let's look at chapter 21 again. First of all, verse 4 says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death. No more death. Do you remember what we read in Isaiah 65? As soon as it says, here's the new heavens and the new earth and Jerusalem and no more pain, then it says that if a child dies at a hundred years, it will be like a child dying. And a sinner who dies will be accursed. And then at the end of the chapter, it not only said about the the, uh, lion and the bullock, but the serpent was there as well. So here's a new heaven and a new earth and there's still death. Take another passage which doesn't say a new heaven and a new earth to show you that death goes on long after the millennium. 
long after the start which we have here, and that is 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. And this is a passage which takes us right to the end. This is practically the last word in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then cometh the end. When he should have lived up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he should have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. So there are still enemies. Long after the millennium. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Death. The last one. But he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. That's the end. And yet, right to that time when he's about to, to hand up a perfect kingdom to the Father, death has to be dealt with. What do you see? This new heaven and new earth cannot be the end. But the moment you see it's a former, I'll come back to Revelation 21, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the former heaven and earth were passed away. Well, what were they, the former? Well, the heaven and the earth are the six days creation. You see, where we made a mistake, we said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and at the end, there's a new heaven and a new earth. But that isn't what it says. It says, in the beginning, God did that, and then cometh the end. And the new heaven and the new earth is in its right place inside, where you see the word uh, Revelation 21, Behold, I make all things new. In that new heaven and new earth is Paradise, chapter 22. In the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits. That's paradise restored. But, but the Garden of Eden wasn't in the beginning, in the first verse of Genesis. It's in the creation where Adam is. So, you see, this is another step. The millennium was the end of one period. It's the last of a series. All delegated authority now ceases. In the millennium, there are twelve apostles sitting upon twelve thrones. In the millennium, there's a man-child caught up to God in his throne who rules the nations with a rod of iron. In the millennium, there are the overcomers who reign with Christ a thousand years. And then they're all put aside, all dedicated authority, and the Son only, at last, brings that kingdom to perfection and hands it to the Father. If you're still in doubt about the the character of the new heaven and the new earth, we'll go back again to the last chapter of Isaiah. He says there, in chapter 66, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before thee, saith the Lord. That's going to take place in the new heaven and the new earth. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. In the new heaven and the new earth. 
I mean, after all said and done, I didn't write the prophecy of Isaiah, friends. You know that, don't you? There it is in your Bible as it is in mine, and we've got to face that fact that in the new earth, there's still going to be the Gehenna, where the carcasses of men will be seen, and their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Now, if that's robbed you of some ideas that you had, well, you've got to make up your mind whether you prefer to have your ideas or let your ideas be reshaped for the Scriptures. But so far as I'm concerned, it's disconcerting for me to see this. But I've got to this point that whatever God has written, it's been written for our learning. And if it means we've got to alter our views, well, so much the better. Because to have uh, wrong or unscriptural conceptions of any one thing will have repercussions with regard to other things. Truth is truth, and we must be glad to receive it, whatever its apparent consequences. So here we have three passages. Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66, Revelation 21, where there is death and curse and even carcasses, worm and fire. Now there's one other passage which speaks about the new heaven and the new earth, and that is in Peter. Second Peter. It's rather remarkable that Paul never speaks about the new heaven and the new earth. You would imagine if it was the end of all things, it was his ministry which would include it. But it's Peter that speaks about it. So I'd like you to look just now and uh, consider this. He speaks about the scoffers in the last days who say, where is the promise of his coming? I'm reading now verse 4. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Now I'll emphasize that, from the beginning of the creation, because I hope somebody will say, my, that's caught him out properly, hasn't it? Here, here, Peter goes back to the beginning of creation, and so we're right back where we were. The orthodox people are right, and you are wrong. Well, let me remind you of this, that Mark is the one that is associated with Peter's ministry. If you notice 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 13, the church that is Babylon elected together with you saluteth you and so doth Marcus, my son, Mark. Well, you say, what, what's that got to do with it? Well, we go back to Mark and we find these words in the 10th chapter and the 6th verse. Mark 10, 6. Oh, they're speaking about divorce. Verse 5, And Jesus answered and said unto him, For the hardness of your heart he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Who's he speaking about? Oh, you know, don't you? Adam and Eve. Well then, we're, we're back to the beginning of creation. But we're not we're back to the beginning of the creation when Adam comes on the scene. We're back to the six days creation. We're not back to Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There's no Adam and Eve there. There's darkness upon the face of the deep and a long upheaval and a wait before we get and God said let there be light. So you see, Peter's just in the same. He's taking you back to the beginning of the Adamic creation when this earth was prepared for man. 
Peter speaks of Noah in both of his epistles. He speaks about Noah in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 20 when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few that his eight souls were saved. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, chapter 2 he says in verse 5, he spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now that word flood is used in 2 Peter 3, 6, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Well, if Peter's writing and uses the same word twice, it looks as though he's referring to the flood in the days of Noah. And to crown it, Matthew 24 and Luke 17 refer to the flood in the days of Noah and that exhausts the Greek word <coughs> cataclysm, which is used by Peter. So you see, we've still got the confirmation that the new heaven and the new earth is a renewing of the heaven and the earth that was put under a curse because of Adam's sin. But we haven't got to the end. The perfect thing hasn't come. But this is another stage and another step in the right direction. Well now, there's so many other features. I don't think we could do much more but draw your attention to the fact in the book of the Revelation we've got this distinction made here. First of all, we have no more no sorrow, no more death. Then we have the overcomer. He comes into the scene in the new heaven. He's not done with in the, in the millennium. He that overcometh should inherit all things. Or, as some manuscripts read, he should inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he should be my son. But, in contrast, the fearful and the unbelieving, and the abominable, and the murderers, and the whoremongers, and the sorcerers, and the idolaters, and all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burneth his fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's the second death. These were going to be hurt by the second death. Do you remember we looked at that list, that terrible list in verse 8, which most people say belong to the ungodly, wicked world have we found every one of the words are used of Christians. Fearful is not used of anybody else except a believer. Paul wrote that word to Timothy. God hath not given us the spirit of cowardice, Timothy. It's to do with service. And you remember that both Peter and Paul include in a list where we have rioting and even being busybodies, murderers. Now, I wouldn't like to write to one of God's people in this chapel, now, don't you be a busybody or a murderer. It would sound absurd, wouldn't it? And yet it didn't seem so absurd when Paul wrote Galatians or Peter wrote his epistle. And then, let's come back to the epistle to the Ephesians, which is dealing with our high calling, the church of the mystery, where they stand in grace and listen to this. But fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Neither filthiness, there's the word, filthy, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That expression is unique. 
the kingdom of Christ and of God. Listen to this in Revelation 20. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And it says of that company, they shall be priests of God and of Christ. The two together. And this is parallel with the expression in Romans the 8th chapter. If children and heirs, heirs of God, that's one thing, then joint heirs with Christ, if so be we suffer with him, that's another thing. All the dis- dis- distinction is drawn all through the scriptures between living and reigning. It's one thing to have life. It's another thing to win a crown. And the millennium, and even into the new heaven and the new earth, this still obtains. Because these are excluded from the heavenly city. They taste the second death. They're hurt by the second death instead of being in that glory. Well now you see, this chart rather envisages the whole thing and I'll refer to it as briefly as possible because I think my time is nearly running out. In the creation which is associated with the creation of Adam, you remember God said, let there be a firmament. And he called it heaven. Now that word firmament is the Hebrew word rakia, which means thinness. And Isaiah chapter 40 says that he stretched out the heavens like a curtain to dwell in. A curtain. The present heavens are going to depart like a scroll, said Isaiah. They're going to be rolled up and packed away. But the heaven of heavens where God is. The heaven of Genesis 1 verse 1. That's never going to be packed up and rolled away. The limited one that God has used temporarily while he's working out his redemptive purpose is likened to a tent. And the new heaven, what does it say? The tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. Still speaking about the tabernacle and its typical teaching. Now it's difficult to bring these subjects to a precise point because there's so many other features clamoring for attention. I think without using a trite expression, most of us feel that we've been on this subject now for, what, about 15 months. And I think we all feel just about ready to go back and start all over again. Well, we're not going to do that quite. But we never get away from this because the word free Roma covers the whole purpose of the ages It is a fullness which is being made by God to take the place of the rent that came in. Genesis 1 verse 2 and darkness is upon the face of the deep and the entry of sin and death that's all going to be put away but put away righteously and by the work of Christ. We'll leave it there and take up the concluding study of this uh, set next week which will be considering the typical teaching of the three kingdoms, Saul, David, and Solomon.